All right, Isaiah 53, Isaiah 53 and verse number 7. Today we continue with the Isaiah 53 prophecies concerning God's suffering servant. In chapter 45, you remember I referenced last week that bit of prophecy where God was talking about his Messiah, his anointed one, Cyrus. And he made a big deal about naming Cyrus by name in order that when it happened, you would know that God is God. In this chapter, we have, uh, we have really Jesus of Nazareth. He is not named by name. But the details surrounding his life and his death that have been unfolding are just so obviously Jesus. And that is 700 years later when Jesus would appear and do these things and would turn the world upside down. And would turn the world upside down not by becoming a political power, not by becoming a loud voice among men, but by being very quiet, as gentle as a lamb. He would come, he would heal the sick, He would teach the truths of Scripture as they shone on him, and he would die for our sins. And in doing these things, not in raising an army, but in doing these acts of suffering and ministry, he turned the world upside down 2,000 years ago. More than identifying a person from Isaiah 53, we understand the purpose of his suffering. His soul was an offering of guilt, a guilt offering. He makes many we see today to be accounted righteous. And we see an indication by a bit of an incongruity in the text and one word that is kind of loaded terminology that doesn't fit the context, the word spoils. Uh, The word spoils is a loaded word. We know that he is coming again and his reward is with him. Let's look at the text today as we look at Isaiah 53 verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence." And there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when he makes his soul an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge, or the word is sweat, Shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall hear, or he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Let's pray. Father, we love our Savior Jesus Christ and we love you for your love, your mercy, your goodness through and through. Father, you are holy and pure. You are weighty. Uh, You are the founder and author of the universe of all time, of all purpose. And God, we will only find our meaning and purpose in life in you. 
We thank you that you have sent your son, Jesus Christ, to be your great suffering servant. We thank you for this text that tells you why you did so, why he died, and even hints at an inheritance and a prolonging of the, of the days of this one who died. I pray that you'd give us wisdom to understand your word today. I pray that we would center our lives on our Savior, Jesus Christ, and that you would use us to your glory and deliver us in your presence with reward. Grace upon grace. God, we ask for you to do this work, not for our glory, but for your glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we begin our study, the servant's life and ministry will end in an unjust judgment sentencing him to death. We see verses 7 through 9, how his life ends. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a, sleep that before, a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land, uh, cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Uh, we have already seen that the servant would be despised. If you look back at verse number 3, it begins uh, with, he was despised and rejected by man. We understood that, and uh, a lot of texture out of that, out of the first half of this chapter. In chapter 50, in verse number 6, the servant said this, I gave my back to those who strike, my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. As you see the things done to this suffering servant, just the, 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 the laundry list or the, the, the tick box list that you could just tick off everything that you see in history happened to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was foretold 700 years before he was even born as a human being. We see in verse number 7 that the servant will be oppressed through judgment. If you look at verse 7, it says he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Uh, yet he opened not his mouth. And then in verse 8, it says, By oppression and judgment he was taken away. His judges were Pilate. Pilate sent him over to Herod, who sent him back to Pilate. Caius and, uh, and, uh, or Caiaphas and Annas, the uh, two high priests, if that makes any sense. There was a historical anomaly at that point in, Jer in Jerusalem's history where he had two high priests. And what we saw was Pilate just washed his hands of justice. I find nothing wrong with this man. And he washed his hands of Jesus, washed his hands of judgment, and, and just walked away unjustly from an innocent man. Herod brought Jesus over to be entertained and sent him back to Pilate. So he had the, the uh, Roman authorities not offering him justice, but injustice. And then you had Annas, Annas and Caiaphas who were the high priests, and not only were they unjust in their judgment, they were seeking false witnesses against Jesus. It was a travesty of judgment. And so it says in verse number 8, by oppression and judgment, and we could put in the word false judgment, he was taken away. His uh, disposition while suffering was that of silence, and it's amazing that 2,000 years ago he turned the world upside down, and yet he was silent. He did not raise an army. There were those who wanted him to do so. And, and after miracles in front of 5,000 and then 4,000, he certainly could have garnered some kind of following. Yet he turned the world upside down through 
being silent like a lamb led to slaughter. As you know, I was raised as a butcher, butchered a lot of beef. And when you're dealing with beef cows, beef cows are not like dairy cows. Dairy cows are handled every day individually and they're kind of gentle. Beef cows, I've never raised beef cows, but my impression is you can just throw them out in a pasture or a feedlot and a machine can feed them and watering troughs can water them, automatically refill. And once in a while, you handle them as a group and you move them to new pasture, new feedlot. But they just aren't used to human beings. They're a little bit wild. And so as you're trying to get them into a kill pen, uh, you're 99.999% sure that cow is going to die before you. But 12 people every year in the United States die in the meat industry. And there's always just that little bit of a chance that you might go before this cow. Okay? Cows, beef cows, I mean, I can't imagine what it would have been like at the temple. Uh, Maybe all the cows, they didn't have big lots. And perhaps all the cows were handled and it was a gentle thing to lead your ox to the temple to be slaughtered. Did they have pens? Did they have have shoots? I, I don't see how they could have. And, and I don't see how the sacrificing of oxen went easily. But sheep, I, you know, I, I don't even remember an event with a sheep. I, we, we, we didn't do that many of them, but they, they were just kind of like, you know, silent. And they might bleat once in a while, and they looked a little bit confused. And that's probably because I didn't know how to handle them. I'm no shepherd. But uh, you would just get them into the kill pen, and there would just not be, not be a problem. Uh, the, the comparison here is that, that our Lord and Savior would have been like a sheep, that he would have been quiet. And as I imagine the temple sacrificial system, I would think that with hundreds of thousands of sheep being offered at every Passover, that it was just a butcher assembly line process. The, the blood flowed red down the, uh, down the uh, Brook Kidron uh, on sacrifice days because of the volume of sheep being killed. And so... That is how our Savior is like, and not as a revolutionary, but as a sheep, somebody who is quiet. And verse 8 asks this question, as for his generation, who considered that all of this happened for the transgressions of God's people? Look at verse 8. As for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? Who understood that when Jesus died? Did his disciples even understand that on the whole? Uh, there, there just seemed to be a lot of lack of connecting the dots. Uh, among his disciples, maybe the ladies best understood it. Uh, um, uh, you know, the, uh, Mary, uh, Mary Magdalene and Martha, perhaps they understood these things a little better than others. But among his generation, if you look at the general population, he was just an absolute enigma, a mystery, uh, you know, and... and, um, and, and People did not understand what he was doing while he was doing it. He was dying for the transgressions of all these people. However faith surfaces in your life, especially if you choose to pick up your cross and follow Jesus, your life's going to be an enigma. It's going to be a mystery. People are going to look at you and just wonder at you. What are you really doing? Just consider the fact that you're here this morning. This is Sunday. The sun is out. It's a bright day. The Vikings play at noon. You're not going to make the game in downtown Minneapolis because you're here. A beautiful day to see the game, but you're not going to make it. If you're into tea at the St. Paul Hotel, it's a daily event, but they have it on Sundays too at 1. You're not going to make that either. And a lot of people do it. It's booked out through the end of the year. $50 per person for tea, booked out through the end of the year. Don't ask me how I know. But uh, (laughs) I've never been there. Never been there. But... uh, Delectable brunches on Sundays, just delectable. Hiking, there are so many things to do. 
yet you get in your car every Sunday to come to church. Is it that entertaining? Is there enough variety here to keep you entertained week after week? See, that's what the world wonders. What do you find here? Uh, You know you find salvation. You find the wonders of salvation. You find a walk with God. You find spiritual correction for the issues that really are destroying your life. You find guidance. You find fellowship with God and with the people of God. You find a focus on eternity so that when you go out and face issues this week, you understand what really is at stake. You have eternity in view. And you understand your Savior and you're willing to follow Him. You find strengths for the storms of life. And you are even able to face death with some degree of assurance according to the measure of your faith that all is under control. These are the reasons why you are here or at least among them. But it's a spiritual mystery that the world does not understand. The world cannot understand, cannot appreciate. And they did not appreciate with our Savior. As he died uh, just outside the city gates, people didn't understand. Uh, They didn't respect what he was doing. They're not going to respect us either. In verse 9, they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. A little bit of grammar there that, that makes us a little bit hard to understand. Uh, it, it says in verse 9, and they made his grave with the wicked. The term wicked in Hebrew is a plural. So the wicked, a, a plurality, more than one. It made his grave with the wicked. And with a rich man, that's singular, in his death. And, uh, and so there's a few interpretations. Some are saying, well, the idea of being wicked and being rich go together because when you're wicked, that's how you accumulate riches by theft. Uh, that doesn't seem to work with the plural and the singular. The conjunction and a rich man is, is the uh, Hebrew letter vav. It, it's the conjunction. It can, be, it can mean and, it can mean but, it can be, mean yet. So it can be kind of an adversative idea. Um, so uh, one, one of my favorite, perhaps, translation is they made his grave with the wicked, yet with a rich man. Uh, so as that there's a bit of a, 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 a change that happened, that they had intended for him to be buried, not buried, burned in the valley of Hinoam, where you burned all the trash and you burned all the criminals. And it's a smoldering valley. Hinoam is where you get the idea of Gehenna, the idea of hell itself. It's a stench and it's a fire continually, just burning uh, uh, refuse. And, and so the intent was to, to bury him there, to burn him there in the valley of Hinoam. Yet, a, he shared a grave with a rich man. Um, and so that, that, that would probably be my, my favored um, interpretation. And that points to Joseph of Arimathea. Let me just read from John 19 and, uh, and just see if this juxtaposition in this, this verse fits this. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also who, heard, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb. Matthew 27, 60 makes it clear that it was his own new tomb. His own new tomb. Joseph of Arimathea's own new tomb, in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, 
they laid Jesus there. And so as we look at that, they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man, or yet with the rich man. I, I think it's just more details that, that connect when you see what happened in the narrative of, of what happened historically around the crucifixion of Jesus. So he endured suffering. He endured injustice. He was killed. He was buried in a tomb. These things are clear thus far in Isaiah 53. All of the suffering God's servant endured was the will of God as well as the doing of God to atone for the sins of the world in verses 10 and 11. It's the will of God as well as the doing of God. Verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge. And most of the time that word would be translated knowledge. It could fit here, but there is a third definition in the Hebrew dictionary, and that is the word sweat. And they list that as the meaning here, and that really fits this quite well. By his sweat shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Verse 8 through 10 make it clear that Jesus is a suffering Messiah, but verses 10 and 11 tell us why. He's a guilt offering for our sins. He's counting us righteous and bearing our sins. Now, he was a great teacher, and he gave great revelations. But man is not saved by knowledge or revelation without the literal suffering of the Messiah in history. If nothing else, this tells you that hell is real. It wasn't enough for Jesus to come and to impart knowledge and to invite us to repentance. He had to suffer and die for sin. Now, he prayed three times that this cup of suffering could pass from him. Nevertheless, God's will be done. It did not pass from him. It was necessary that God the Son take the form of human flesh, become one of us, live a righteous life on our behalf, suffer and die a punitive death on our behalf for our sin, and rise again from the dead. These things are necessary. He had to suffer literally. He had to die literally and physically for our sins. Those who do not trust him will suffer and die eternally for their sins. The Bible teaches this. And the fact that this had to be a literal suffering, suffering of our Messiah in a fully human body, tells you that this is a real physical suffering, that hell is real, that hell is physical as well. Verse 10 also makes it clear that this is not a tragic mistake. It was the will of God. Look at verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. It is not because God has a grudge against his servant. It is not because you have some pantheon of gods where the father is upset with the son and to punish him or to teach him some lesson that he needs to learn. There is none of that kind of narrative in the Bible. That is the product of false religions where you have, uh, basically as Doug Bookman says, you have men blown big. 
men with their problems, fathers with their problems, sons with their problems, blown big. That's the pantheon of false gods. It's the fabrication of man's imagination. There is no such sentiments between the father and the son. There is only perfect fellowship. There's a twofold benefit that the father is bringing through offering the son. First, it would give the servant many offspring, making many righteous. Look at verse 10. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He, I take this to be the son, shall see his offspring. He, again the son, shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So God the Father has Jesus Christ the Son do this knowing that he is going to see many offspring and he is going to prolong his days. Verse number 11, out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make what kind of a quantity here? Many to be accounted righteous. He shall make many accounted to be righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So first, in verses 10 and 11, it's going to give the servant many offspring, making many righteous. The second thing that we see there is it's going to make the servant quite satisfied. Quite satisfied in what he has done and what he has accomplished. It is going to bring him great glory. Now, the son is infinite like the Father. He's infinitely glorious and always has been. Before he became flesh, before he became one of us, he was lacking nothing. He was always infinitely loving and infinitely merciful. Uh, That was never a shortfall on the part of the Father or the Son. And the Son was always obedient to the Father. Uh, Not that he was less than the Father, but he submitted eternally to the Father. Submission is a God thing. God the Son submits to the Father eternally. There was never any problem with any of that. But God the Son learned some things experientially. Now, he is infinite in his knowledge, but he learned some things experientially. He knew what it was to be sinless and to be above sin, but he learned some things when he became a human being experientially and experienced the temptation of sin the way you and I do. He learned some things experientially about obedience. He went through it, the difficulty of the obedience to the death of the cross. We see the anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane. He always knew these things, but now he knew them experientially. And that is different. We see them. In history, we see that God is loving, that God is merciful. The Father put forth the Son in order that the Son might be glorified. Maybe it's because I just finished the book this week, or maybe it it fits, but I think about how parents raise their children and how you give them experiences, and you want for them experiences that you don't even give them. And they can be hard experiences, but they can be good in their outcome. This book is called The Coddling of the American Mind, and one premises is this. It's a really good premise. It ought to be a proverb. Too many parents prepare the road for their child instead of their child for the road. So in other words, too many parents are going in front of their children, smoothing out all the rough spots, saying, okay, Johnny's coming to school now. Uh, This bully over here and this thing over here and this teacher's not quite fair. And and they just smooth out the road for Johnny. Instead of preparing Johnny for the road, that is your school, that is your class, that is your homeschool co-op. There's going to be some things in there. Let me prepare you for these. 
and you see how you deal with them. Anyway, here is a, here is a, a father's wish for a son and, uh, from this book, and I thought it was good. From time to time in the years to come, I hope you will be treated unfairly so that you will know the value of justice. I hope that you will suffer betrayal because that will teach the importance of loyalty. Sorry to say, but I hope you'll be lonely from time to time so you don't take friends for granted. I wish you bad luck. I believe in providence, but we'll use his terms for now. I wish you bad luck again from time to time so that you will be conscious of the role of chance in life and understand that your success is not completely deserved and the failure of others is not completely deserved either. And when you lose, as you will from time to time, I hope every now and then your opponent will gloat over your failure. It is a way for you to understand the importance of sportsmanship. I hope you'll be ignored so you know the importance of listening to others. And I hope you have just enough pain to learn compassion. Whether I wish these things or not, they're going to happen, and whether you benefit from them or not will depend upon your ability to see the message in your misfortunes. So that's Greg uh, Lukian off, The Coddling of the American Mind. And again, I, just, I love the premise that too many parents prepare the road for their child rather than their child for the road. God the Father put forward his son to suffer. That is going to yield the son literally having offspring in history. Those who he saved. Those who are his children. Real human beings made in the image of God and therefore precious because we bear the image. They will be his offspring. They will be his children because he did this. And he will be quite satisfied looking on the accomplishment that he has in suffering and dying for our sins and in offering a righteous life to our credit. One tension in this passage, there's something that doesn't quite go together um, in this passage. In verse 8, he's cut off from the land of the living. In verse 10, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. How are you cut off from the land of the living and yet you're prolonging your days? The answer can only be found in the resurrection. He will die a martyr's death, and he will be resurrected to eternal life. That only makes sense in the resurrection of the body. And, and Isaiah has already talked about resurrection. In fact, it's all over the Old Testament. Don't let anybody tell you that the Jews did not have a concept of resurrection. Isaiah 26, verse 18, We have accomplished no deliverance in the earth, and the inhabitants of the world have not fallen. Your dead, speaking to God, your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. There are some things that only make sense in light of the resurrection. Success follows death. How does that make any sense in this world? Only in the resurrection. We have a lot of Christians who think that the purpose of our prayer life is to avoid suffering and to avoid death. They think that prayer is to grease the skids of life so you have an easy life. They think that if you are righteous, God will answer all of your prayers and you will not be sick and you will not be poor. You will have every success. And it's called the prosperity gospel. But in trials, we pray 
that God's will be done. We pray, yes, for success. We pray for the disease to pass. We pray for every success for all of you and for ourselves. Uh, This is just natural human behavior. We want to be well. We want to be successful. But we pray according to the will of God, and we know that we're all going to die of something. And so we ask that God would answer our prayer for healing, He would answer our prayer for success, but His will be done and give us the strength and the faith to be obedient children through whatever He has for us. If you think being cut off and prolonging His days is a contradiction, listen to Jesus in, uh, in Luke 21, where He talks about you being put to death, but not a hair of your head being hurt. You will be, you'll be delivered up by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you will be put to death. You will be hated by all men for my name's sake, but not a, hair, not a hair of your head will perish. He just said you'll die, but not a hair of your head will perish. How does that make sense? Without the resurrection, it makes no sense. So Christians go forth and minister in dangerous circumstances when we believe it to be the will of God. We aren't going to be careless with our lives and our stewardship of of what God has given us, but we take some risks knowing that it is okay if the risk goes badly. We we pray for God's will to be done and Him to give us the strength and the faith to honor Him in that. The promises of God are eternal. Yeah, there's some things that manifest in this life. There's some prosperity that manifests in this life from time to time when God wills it. But there's also suffering and trials, and he wills that as well. So we see in verse 10 that it was the will of God for this servant to die, and it was God's will prospering in his hand when he did so. Look again at verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, and get this, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. This one who is cut off, this one who dies. It is the will of, the, of God prospering. In verse 11, we see many will be accounted righteous. This is imputed righteousness. It says, by his knowledge or by his sweat shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. That means you've got this imputed righteousness, this credit to your account, righteous. If I were to transfer to whatever savings or checking account you have today, if I were to transfer a million dollars, you would be a millionaire. You would have a million dollars imputed to your account without you doing a thing. If I have your numbers, you can't even stop it as far as I know. It would just transfer to your account. You would be a millionaire. Because of Jesus Christ and his righteousness, when you place your faith in him, the righteous life he lived as a man gets credited to your account. You become a righteous man. That's imputed righteousness. Not only that, not only are you perfectly righteous in God's judgment, but your sins are removed. He bears your iniquities. Look again at verse number 10. My righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So it's a twofold process where on uh, on the one hand, he gives you the imputing of his righteous life. He also takes upon himself your punishment, your iniquity, and he suffers physical punishment for your iniquity. The eternal, infinite God, man, Jesus, takes your iniquities, takes your physical punishment punishment, what you would spend eternity in hell paying off, 
He pays off as the infinite God, man, Jesus. He bears your iniquities. He removes our guilt. So we see here at the last, the servant will be rewarded with a portion among the many whose sins he bore in verse 12. Therefore, I will divide with him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. There's some translation things in those first two phrases. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The translation work here in those first few lines could be distorted. I am only smart enough in Hebrew to be aware of it. I can't come up with any good solutions for you. If you see the word many, that could also be the word great or strong. If you see the word strong, that could also be the word numerous. So you can almost flip those words and, uh, and you'd have uh, legitimate definitions. What is interesting there is you have the first person singular, I will divide with him a portion. That's God's voice, the Father. And he shall divide. That is the action of the Savior, of the servant. So you have God dividing with him a portion with the many. Now that also could be, I am giving him the portion which is the many. I am giving him all that he has saved. These are his people. Okay, whatever it is, whether God is saying, I'm dividing a portion, you have all the wealth of the universe, son, and, and we know biblically that Jesus Christ shares his rule with us, that we will own all things according to the scriptures. Um, uh, that, 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 that either way, that, that this works out. Whether God is giving us to Jesus or giving Jesus everything, uh, uh, that he'll divide with us, uh, either one works out biblically. But then we see that Jesus divides something with the strong or with the many or the numerous. And that which he divides is the spoil. And as I said earlier, spoil is a loaded word. Where do you get spoils? I mean, we jokingly, you know, if a kid goes trick-or-treating, we say, oh, let's see your spoils. But, but in reality, he didn't steal those things. He did not overcome people. Spoils refer to the booty that you get when you defeat somebody in an act of war. Where in Isaiah 53 do you see this servant engaging in warfare? Nowhere. He's crushed. He's defeated. He's dead. And yet somewhere, somehow, he's going to have spoil to divide with the many. That's a loaded term. Now, we don't build a theology off of that. And I don't think the ancient reader would have saw that and said, oh, let's build a theology of end times eschatology off of that one word. But it's just one of those words that appear in Scripture that makes you say, stay tuned. Something's up. And in the Old Testament, you could go to the Day of the Lord passages. Uh, you know, the Day of the Lord passages are frightful, fearsome days when all of a sudden you see a very different Jesus. You see a very different deliverer. And if you want to go home and read the story in, in living color, you can read Revelation 19 later today. The conclusion of this poem ends with the glorification of the servant. And the word therefore connects his suffering for our sin with the reason for his reward. Look at verse number 12. After he has made many righteous, after he bears their iniquities, therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet, or and, he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Understand, Jesus Christ is the 
Son of God. He is God the Son, worthy of all glory and all his being. But through the human experiment, if I can call God's creation the human experiment, and the redemption of humanity, Jesus reveals his glory experientially in history, in space, in time, in a physical body. He descended to earth and took on human flesh and human limitations. He lived righteously while enduring every temptation we face, yet without sin. He was rejected, and his rejection was part of him becoming sin for us, taking our guilt, suffering for our sins. He did it all in obedience to the Father and in love to you and me. All parties in all directions around Jesus. God the Father, who is, who is all in all, uh, who is supreme. The angels beneath him. Humanity beneath him. All around Jesus Christ. All looked to him as worthy of all glory and honor forever. He was that already in his being. But now in space, time, and history, experientially, he has proven that. One last note, in verse 12, he makes intercession for us. There are ways in which you can intercede for others through prayer. I don't think that's what it's talking about. If you were about to be hit by a bus out on the highway and I interceded for you, that might be me physically pushing you out of the way and that might cost me something. I think that is the intercession of our Savior Jesus Christ. He makes intercession for the transgressors. He put himself in harm's way for transgressors. Jesus Christ was put to grief by God the Father for our sins, and he is coming again. As we learned today, he was judged unjustly. He did not raise his voice in protest. He did not raise an army. He understood that God the Father had a purpose with suffering for now. They had intended to dispose of him with the thieves, perhaps in the valley of Hinnom, but Hinnom, but where the criminals' bodies were burned in judgment, but God gave him a rich man's grave. He died nonetheless. He died a physical death. This was not all one big misunderstanding. This was the will of God to crush him for the sins of mankind. He is an offering for guilt, and he will, by so doing, justify many. He will see what he has done, and he will be satisfied. He will prolong his days. That means he is resurrected eternally. And he will remain resurrected eternally. The question for you is this. What is your relationship to Jesus? Have you trusted him to be your savior? Have you confessed your sins, your need of a savior? Have you looked to this one and say, no, this is no longer an enigma. This is no longer a mystery to me. I understand why he was here. I understand why he was rejected. I understand why he died for my sins. Have you come to the point that you are trusting Jesus Christ as your savior? It's an important question. I'm going to give you just a moment to pray and reconcile that with God. It's your opportunity, if you've never done so to, today, to just acknowledge your sin, your need for a Savior. Tell God you're going to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. Let's bow for prayer silently, and then I'll close this in a word of prayer before Ben comes.
Heavenly Father, it was 2,000 years ago that our Savior walked this earth. And uh, Father, he was born in humility. It seems like he embraced every disadvantage in his human form. And he had a mission that was bound to fail from every human measurement and every human standpoint. He would be rejected and crucified for our sins. Yet, Father, this is your victory because sin is real and judgment is serious and real. It is spiritual and it is physical. It is not just one or the other. And so, Father, he became sin for us. He bore the shame of our sin. And he suffered physically on the cross and he died for our sins. Father, this was your will and we understand this to be the only way that our race could be saved from our sin. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your mercy. And we praise the name of Jesus, for he is loving and merciful as well. And Father, we so much look forward to the day that he is our king on the throne, reigning in our presence. He is worthy. I pray that you would help us to grow in our faith in Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to embrace the role that you have for us in this world. It's not a popularity contest. It's not fame and riches. It is faithfulness. And, Father, it is the opportunity to pick up our cross, whatever that may look like on a given day, and to follow you. I pray that we'd be willing to open our mouths and risk our reputation with our friends by just asking them about their relationship with Jesus and just listening And seeing, observing, seeing if they want to talk about their Savior. I pray you'd help us to be an evangelistic people, sharing good news to those who need it. God, I pray that you would help us to be a loving people. I pray that you'd help us to put the concerns of others first. And God, help us to serve your people and to love your people. Teach us how to do that. Father, we thank you. Pray your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen.